we continue on with our sermon that uh, we've been in the way. And the way is this long uh, journey we're taking with Jesus. We're walking with Jesus step by step and day by day as he goes from the land where he did most of his ministry around the Sea of Galilee, and he takes this long meandering walk to Jerusalem where he will eventually be crucified. And so this, this series that we're in, this kind of movement that they're in represents three to five days of the life of Jesus, but an incredible amount of richness as how we might walk through a hostile territory, because Jesus is walking through hostile territory. He's going in Samaria, and Jews and Samaritans were not exactly friendly. And so how do we take on hostile territory? How do we live in a world divided? How do we practice the ways of Jesus in a culture that may not be so into that? And that's what we've been doing now for a few weeks, and we're going to continue today in a kind of a perplexing passage. Jesus has just finished teaching his disciples how to pray, and they look up, and now he's driving out a demon, And the way that he describes what's happening and the way that that this sort of unfolds sort of sounds like kind of crazy ramblings. And so what we're going to do is take a deeper look at it. We're going to zoom in and zoom out at the same time and just try to figure out what is Jesus really saying. And I think it's going to be really helpful. Uh, Luke chapter 11, you could read along with me. Luke chapter 11, starting in verse 14, the Bible says this. It says, Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute. When the demon left... The man who had been mute spoke, and the crowd was amazed. But some of them said, By Beelzebul, the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. And others tested him by asking for a sign from heaven. Jesus knew their thoughts, and he said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and a house divided against itself will fall. If Satan is divided against himself, how can his kingdom stand? I say this because you claim that I drive out demons by Beelzebul. Now, if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your followers drive them out? So then they will be your judges. And if I drive out demons then by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. He continues, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides his plunder. Whoever is not with me, is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. He keeps going. When an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through to arid places seeking rest and it does not find it. And then it says, I will return to the house I left. And when it arrives, it finds the house swept clean and put in order. And so it goes and takes seven other spirits more wicked than itself. And they go in and live there. And the final condition of the person is worse than the first. So Jesus is casting out a demon. And before we even get into that, A lot of people stop there and they go, okay, all right, well, this is like old-fashioned spiritualism or something. You know, maybe the person had a physical malady or maybe there was a mental health issue, but just they didn't call it that back then. And I think it's important for us to make a distinction that Jesus made a distinction. Jesus made distinctions between sick people and hurt people and sad people and possessed people. And it can make us uncomfortable because we, we choose as much as we can to not live in a world where, where things beyond our, our sight exist. But the Bible paints a picture of a multidimensional human, an emotional, chemical, biological, spiritual human. The quick aside that we would take as we read through that, it says the demons, Jesus says, seek out an arid place. Which is interesting because when you find Satan in your New Testament, it's often in the wilderness. It's in the arid places. It's in the places where nothing else is living. And this is interesting because that's when we are most vulnerable When we find ourselves in arid places and dry places and devastated places and broken places, that's the place where the demon is going to flee. It goes to the place where nothing else is. 
So it's possible that when we are most broken or most vulnerable, that that is when, in those seasons of trial, that we are most uh, vulnerable to evil. It's why when you're in a season of struggle that people will pray for you, that you should be praying for yourself to say, keep me from temptation. Because when we are in those situations, when we're in those places, you'll read over and over in the scripture that it's in those arid, devastated, broken places where evil tends to congregate. Back to the text, Jesus is refuting skeptics. And he opens up this conversation about change and a divided self. House divided cannot stand, that works really well in your football huddle. Then he says, a strong man guards his house, which is just like when he says that a man was going down to Jericho, which is, he's answering a question, but he tells this story that seems to come out of nowhere. Something stronger overtakes the man, and then a house is swept clean, which seems like a whole different, is this a new metaphor? He's kind of jumping between different concepts. Is he rambling is the real question. And I think he's quite clear, but it requires us to zoom out. Jesus is talking about the power to change. I have a friend named Matt, who in college we were close friends, and he was, a, he was a big guy, real big guy. And I met my wife, we moved to South Africa, and we move home from South Africa, and I see Matt for the first time, and I'm pretty sure that it's Matt's little brother, because this does not look like the man that I left. And he goes, hey, so good to see you. And I'm like, where is the rest of you? Matt had lost 120 pounds while we were gone. 120 pounds is a lot of pounds. He, he shaved a seventh grader right off of his body. And when I, when I first saw him, I was like, I'm just, I'm uncomfortable for you. Like, this, this has got to be a lot of work. I said, how'd you do it? And he goes, I gave myself over to being healthy. I just gave myself over to it. I got a trainer. I got accountability. I changed my diet. I'm working on everything. I'm dealing with my mental health stuff. My anxiety's going down. And he went through all the lists. He, I says, I just had to devote my life to like, I had to get healthy. It's like, oh, Okay. Everybody knows somebody who's had kind of a radical transformation, maybe physically, maybe emotionally, relationally, something changes. Jesus is telling us that it is entirely possible to get your life in order, to get your house swept and cleaned up, and you can do it without God. Jesus is allowing for that. Look, you can sweep your house clean. You don't need God to do it. You can make a radical change, and people do it all the time without God. There's a catch, though. Keller says it this way, he says, the only way to get the power to change is to give yourself over to something. The only way to get the power to change is to give yourself over to something. And so my friend Matt says, I gave myself over to health. And so I was able to change. Physical fitness, you have to submit to a diet and workout plan. Emotional health, you have to submit to a counselor and life routines, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You have to give yourself over to it. You must be coached into it. It's interesting in a sports-obsessed culture, we think about what that means and how that looks when we live in a place where we are coaching our kids from a young age. We're changing them, we're growing them, we're developing them into who just we want them to be. You go out to the soccer field and you hear parents and coaches shouting at little boys and little girls, dominate, crush him, steal it, go for the kill, little Johnny. Are you hurt? Shake it off, rub some dirt on it, get out there. Win at all costs. We train our children in interesting ways, don't we? We're building resilience. and Yes, yes, yes. We're training our weak-kneed little children to be dominating forces taking care of lesser kids. I will eat your children for lunch. We send our kids to sports-specific camps. I have a nephew that goes to point guard basketball camp. Not basketball camp, 
basketball kit for his specific position on the team. Exclusive point guard basketball kit. So, I mean, there's layers on layers on layers of the hyper-specific skill he's trying to be given, and he's coached towards the exact skills he needs to dominate and kill other children. If, and here's the big deal, he can go and not come home changed, but he goes and he, gets, he comes home better. He comes home developed. He comes home changed. Why? Because he has to be willing to give himself over to that for a week. He has to be willing to give himself over to the coaching, to trust in the words being spoken to him. Which, ironic as it is, gets weird for us as we raise our kids in kind of a really competitive, sports-obsessed culture, and everything is competitive. Dance is competitive, and sports are competitive, and all the things we do are Boy Scouts. Are you better Boy Scout than that Boy Scout? Kill those Boy Scouts. I don't know. It wasn't a Boy Scout. Maybe that's not true. Then we introduced people to Coach Jesus. We had, you know, soccer coach, and basketball coach, and piano coach, and dance coach, and whatever coaches. We have all these coaches, and we introduced people to Coach Jesus, and then it just sounds funny. Submit to each other. Like, shout these out at the kid on the football field next Friday night. Give your life away. Love your enemies. Help up that other team. Be generous. Give the ball away. Like, we don't say these things. They're so opposite of what we have ingrained in every single day of every extracurricular that we're, we're to be taking ground and Jesus is seeding life. Losing is the only way to winning, guys. Go get them. Lose your life. A child divided cannot stand. We wonder why we get these young adults that are struggling. Going, look, my whole life everybody said it's this, and now you're telling me Jesus says it's that, and I, it's hard to square those things. Where is that Jesus that dominates? Where's the Jesus dunking on the Romans and then doing a touchdown dance? Where's the Jesus that wins elections? I, I don't read that Jesus. I win... I don't have that Jesus. The Jesus that we get in the scripture is a dusty, bloody Jesus carrying a criminal's cross. Doesn't look like winning. It doesn't look like what we yearn for in our culture. It doesn't look like the power to change. It looks like losing and being worse. So when he asks us to do it too, when he asks us to follow him on that path, when he asks us to take up our cross and follow him, it, no, I can't do that. I'm too busy winning. It goes against everything that our culture has taught us. And I'm being cute a little bit with sports, right? Don't take your kids out of sports because the pastor said it's evil. I didn't say that. But it is possible that if we're not thinking about Jesus as the first filter in life, that we're training, we're training each other, we're training our children, we're training our disciples, we're training our community groups, we're training, our, we're training your pastor in ways that don't lead them closer to the power of change available in Jesus, but lead them down some other strange path. Like how many emotionally unavailable men do you have in the room because we were taught that boys don't cry just by show of hands? See, none. Nobody has the emotional wherewithal to raise your hands. I get it. It's okay. How many insecure women in the room? Don't look around at others for validation. But how many insecure women in the room who because you hit puberty and then were challenged to not, you weren't enough for anybody, you needed to be better and you need this marketing product and you need this other thing and now you're attached to an emotionally unavailable man. How many are we left with insecurity that's, just paralyzing. My point is this. If you get self-control and you get power over your problems and you do it all without Jesus, you're actually just worse off. We don't think of it that way, but when you do all the self-help and you do all the self-development, you do all the things divorced from Jesus, they don't help. They just drive you further into a culture that isn't him. Because once we start seeing change in our life that isn't rooted to Jesus, the hook becomes set. The lie takes root that you can do it. And that's, 
fundamentally untrue. That in and of yourself, you were not designed to save yourself. You were not designed to transform yourself. You were not designed for that. Jesus himself said it in his illustration. It's, it's, it's quoted in the, the spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. You, you want to change. You want to be better. You want to grow. You want to transform. You want, but the flesh is weak. It's hard for us. So Jesus says a man has cleaned his house, but he doesn't fill it. Notice he cleans the house. He doesn't invite Jesus in. He just cleans the house, and it's empty now. It's empty, and it's available. And what happens when you clean the house is forces stronger will just come and move in. You've just made room for a different force to enter the house. You get rid of this affection, a new one comes in. You, you kick that habit, and a new one shows up. Emptiness always gets filled. Emptiness always gets filled. Every void eventually gets filled And the question then becomes, what fills the void in life? And if it's a new strategy or it's another changed habit or if it's just a way to adopt culture or to get a little more in touch with my feelings or whatever it is, if it's less than Jesus, if it's not rooted in Jesus, it doesn't change us. It just invites a new set of habits and a new set of problems in. We find ourselves struggling. We just added on to our house. Added on is a a little bit of a stress, but we added two walls to what was a, a walkway between our garage and our house. So, so we used to have a walkway, now we have a mudroom because we added two walls, simple. Part of that, though, is now we have a room and it's an empty room. So we've been stopping at a whole lot more furniture stores and doing a lot more thinking about what could go in the room. Why? Because when you have an empty room, what do you do with an empty room? You gotta fill the room. You fill the room with something. And so we have a new room in our house and the first thing we think to do is we have to start putting things in the room because why else do you have it? You are that. You are this this vessel that was designed for something specifically to put in you, to fill you, to flourishing. And the danger is if we put anything less in there, we find ourselves less than what we were designed for. The strong man in the story is this idea of self-control and discipline. And there's something stronger still. Only Jesus overpowers both. And it says he does so by the finger of God. He uses this term, if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom will have come upon you. What does that phrase mean? He uses that phrase in Exodus. The scripture says the finger of God is what splits the sea. That God's power in the plagues was done through his finger. The Ten Commandments were delivered by the finger of God. Jesus says if I, if I cast out demons by the finger of God, and there's a double meaning there. The one meaning is that from the very hands of creation, from the very hands that, that put this whole thing together, that authored this whole story that you and I are living in, from there, change happens. From there, power emanates. But there's this other piece of it, and the the Jewish scholars would say that a a good Jewish listener, a good Jewish rabbi would tell you that it's not the finger of God, it's the finger of God. That it's the tip of the pinky finger of God making these incredible changes, which opens us up to the reality that if we were to access the full power of God, the full might of Jesus, that by the finger, if just the finger of God can set us free, if the finger of God can split the ocean, if the finger of God can do these incredible things, what would the fullness of God do in our lives? So Jesus is saying, when I clean your house, when I'm the power by which you change, then change is just not waiting for the new demon or the new bad habit to come in. It is eternal and it is beautiful because only I am stronger than the strong man. Only I am stronger than the one who would come to plunder him. I am the true and better strong man. I'm the only one that can hold the house. I'm the only one that can secure the homestead. I'm the only one that if you give yourself to me, you are safe. 
When Jesus changes you, the old goes and new arrives. When Jesus changes you, it's more than an update. It's a transformation. It's not new and better. It's death to life. Death transitions to life. This whole thing is about the power to change. This whole strange, seemingly rambling story Jesus is giving is all about the power to change. When we revel in our power and our will and our agenda and our ability, that change eventually fades. When we let culture define winning or or we change ourselves towards an empty goal that isn't Jesus, we eventually find ourselves empty. What we saw in Luke 10 when we were walking a couple weeks ago, the disciples were casting out demons and they said, Jesus, this is incredible. And he goes, don't be excited by that. Don't be excited that you have power over the spirits. Be excited that your name is written in heaven. Be excited that you're with me. He's telling them, the excitement that you're feeling should not be about what you're able to do. It should be about whose to you belong in your mind. Our joy is rooted in Jesus. Our security is rooted in Jesus. So spell it out. The illustration that Jesus paints, you're the house. It's not the strong man defending it, you're the house. No amount of strength defends it against evil. Jesus is that strong man who can, but it's all about possession. Who owns the house? See, what it means to be a true Christian is to allow Jesus to possess you. We hear someone is possessed and we think of like the exorcist. That's not a very positive idea. But throughout the scripture, what we find is when when we are truly possessed by Jesus, that's when we find ourselves as real followers of his. Ownership changes everything. Do you remember uh, Toy Story? I don't know, it's been like a thousand years, it feels like. But Toy Story, there's like 12 of them now. And the first one, I think it's the first one, that Andy is the boy and Woody is his prize toy, the cowboy doll. How do you know who Woody belongs to? When he's having his existential crisis, his moment of disbelief, the other toys tell Woody to check his foot and he looks at the bottom of his shoe and it, in child's handwriting and crayon, it says, it says A-N-D. You're Andy's toy. And it calms Woody. He remembers who he belongs to, that he's safe in this place. When he finds himself in the arms of the neighbor kid, Sid, the maniacal neighbor kid, possession is maybe a different term for that kid, everything is dangerous because he isn't, he isn't with whom he belongs. In another version, one of the sequels, the, the toy dealer starts to erase Andy's name. He wants to sell him like he's some artifact. And there's a new crisis because I'm not me if I don't belong to Andy. And you and I aren't that different from that concept. That when you, he tells the disciples, it isn't about what you can do, it's about where your name is written. And you flip it a little bit, you can kind of say, it isn't about what you do, it's about whose name is written on your life. It's about whose blood you're under. You were purchased. Scripture says you were bought. You're purchased. You were ransomed. Someone paid a penalty to receive you from bondage. So who or what owns you? We don't like that question because it forces us to do uncomfortable thinking. Who owns you? What owns you? When there's nothing else going on, when you have that that rare minute of silence, when you have that rare minute when it's just you, where does your mind go to? Who owns you? What owns you? By whose power are you seeking change? Let me drive this home. It's 2020. It's been a little bit of a different year. I don't know if you've noticed. A little different. Lots of talk these days about normal. Where's normal? How do we go back to normal? What's the new normal? Everyone's normal. 
We're looking for normal. It can go back to normal. If we can just sweep the house clean of COVID, if I can combine a couple things here, if I can just sweep the house clean of this season, if I can just get back to where I was in February, if I can just get this season away, if I can get the new protocols away, if I can get the new uncomfortable relationships, if I can just, can we just go back to normal? Why are we sitting in giant mega rows instead of these beautiful rows that we used to have? Why do we have 150 chairs up against the wall instead of filling them with our friends? Why, why is our biggest service watching through a camera bolted to the back wall. If we could just go back to normal, we could all be together. We're obsessed with going backwards to normal. But no one goes backwards and calls it a win. Your phone, your cell phone company called you tomorrow and offered you a downgrade. Hey, you're eligible for a free downgrade. We'll give you, give you your last phone that you had that you just turned in with a slower package and less minutes, whatever. Anybody looking for 3G? Like, hey, can I still get on one of those 3G plans? No. Nobody wants a downgrade. Nobody wants to go backwards. It's as if, it's as if there's an opportunity in this year that we wouldn't have asked for, that we don't have to like. I'm not saying you should like it, take your medicine and enjoy it. I'm, there's an opportunity that there's openings everywhere, that there's avenues there didn't used to be, that there's conversations we couldn't have that our routines are interrupted and our life has been changed, that maybe, just maybe, our house has been swept clean a little bit and our calendar was swept clean and our routine was swept clean and the way we worship is swept clean and everything's been swept clean and we have the opportunity now to decide what moves in. Collectively, individually, we have the opportunity to decide, Lord, I used to do this, 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 and because of this whole stupid year, I do none of it. And he goes, yep. What about me? Can I be part of your new week? Can I be part of your new day? Remember when you started your day on your phone because you wanted to see if there was traffic because you had to get on the road and now there is no road and there is no traffic and there's unrest everywhere and zombie apocalypse and the whole thing's happening. And so maybe just, maybe don't open your phone. Maybe just open your Bible. Maybe come meet me in a quiet place. What if God was like ready for this? I know, stretch, stretch with me. What if the author of eternity? What if the creator of all things, what if the spirit who blows breath into your lungs, what if the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, this, this, this God who knows all, the all-powerful creator God, what if God knew this year was coming and let it happen? What if instead of us thinking that it's a year of uncertainty. What if we instead look at a path of uncertainty lined with certain opportunities and we just have to discover them? It makes beauty from ashes, Scripture says. That there are armies of bones on the desert floor and in a word, in a breath, he turns them into living, breathing fighters for justice. And you and I are these things. You and I are living in the ashes of a year that none of us asked for, and yet there's beauty to be made there. You and I are living in the bones of what was, and there's a new life to be born there. Like, what if Jesus has better set aside for you? And so while we yearn for the old normal, even maybe just I'll settle for a new normal, what if Jesus is like, what if you just gave up on normal and asked for better? What if you asked for better? And every morning you said, Jesus, I don't know when normal's coming back, but I want better. Give me new, give me better, give me opportunities, show me the way, put me on the path, I want better. Like maybe the house was swept clean so we could install Jesus back at the center of our lives. So maybe you're a believer in here and you go, you know what? I hadn't thought of it that way. 
Maybe your invitation this year is to be a follower of Jesus again, where you've been a believer, but maybe there's not a whole lot of evidence to show that you're following Jesus. And maybe this is your invitation to get back on that path, to be back on the way. And your invitation is to be a follower of Jesus again and let that belief be lived out in your life. In the 167, when we leave this place and we have 167 hours before we're back here to go and impact our neighbors, to love the unlovable, to rescue orphans, to save the unborn, to bring justice in places where it doesn't exist. What if, what if Jesus said, I know you believe, can you follow me? And that was your invitation today. On the other end, maybe you don't believe and that's okay. You're in the right spot. And maybe you don't believe, but you might be invited to follow too. That Jesus goes, look, I've kind of cleared your calendar. Try me, test me, see me. All through your scripture, you roll through and you see people following Jesus and not all stick. That's up to you, that's up to him, that's not up to me. But when the people follow and they get close and they get a sense of who Jesus really is, sometimes belief is born there. What's true is this, whatever change or hope you are scratching around for today, it's available. We say around here all the time, everyone's in a battle, big or small, public, private, everyone is in a battle. Everybody is fighting something. Everybody is in a battle Everybody is desperate for change in some aspect, in some relationship, in some area. It's financial, it's emotional, it's mental, it's spiritual. Everyone is looking for that hope. Jesus is the only power to lasting change. The only way to healing hope and the only path to true salvation. If you are on a path looking for salvation, if you are looking for hope, if you are looking for change, if you are looking for something to take you from this season to the next, better is on offer and his name is Jesus. And so my challenge to you today is will, will you trust him? Will you walk with him? Maybe walk with him again or maybe walk with him the first time, but would you be willing as we're going to be walking with Jesus in here every week, would you be willing to just start that journey and go, I'll walk, I'll open the door, I've swept my house clean, I'm going to invite Jesus in and just see how it feels. See how that goes for me. See how my life and my hopes are impacted by having the author of creation at the center of my world. Would you trust him? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are challenged by Jesus, we're challenged by this idea, Lord, that you have better for us, that you are our ultimate protector. Father, my confession would be for sure that I, uh, I always try to do it myself first. My habit is to do it myself, to try it myself, and only when I fail and fall and scrape my knee do I look up to you and say, maybe you're better. Father, maybe this is the year that that changes for us that each of us learns that our first help is you, that our first hope is you, that you are the primary possessor of our lives. So Father, today we open our hands to that. Release what we have claimed as ours and we give it to you. That you might write your name on our life and then we might find security in knowing that ultimately no matter what the world brings us, no matter what 2021 looks like, that we do not worry and we do not fret because your name is Jesus and you call us your own. So thank you for loving us. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for letting us follow you in this incredible, beautiful journey. 
pray these things in the saving name of Jesus. Amen.